Today's reading comes from the first letter of John, chapter 4, verses from 7 to 12. It can be found on page 1023 in the Pew Bibles. The first letter of John, chapter 4, verses from 7 to 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The word of the Lord. Good morning all. Good to see you this morning. We are Wrapping up, as Pastor Greg said, we're wrapping up our sermon series, uh, Lent to Life. And Lent does continue through this week. It formally finishes uh, with Palm Sunday next week, but uh, this is our last Sunday of the Lenten series. And throughout our series, we've been looking at these counterintuitive gospel pairings. Repentance to repair, fasting to feasting, humility to unity, withhold to behold, and now we end with, I think, the, uh, the apex of the Lenten season, love to love. This sermon is going to be a little bit different in approach than previous sermons, because in the previous sermons, we explored how our descent down into, into repentance, into fasting, into humility, into withholding, our descent down made the way for us to then ascend upward into repair and feasting and unity and beholding. But this sermon is not about how our descent down makes possible our ascent upward, but rather how God's descent down makes possible our ascent upwards. God loved us sacrificially, but we were still his enemies so that we can love and be loved joyously as his friends. So the love to love is not our love to our love, but God's love to our love. So we're going to look here uh, in verses... Well, I want to, I want to break this uh, text into three basic parts this morning. So first, I want to look at verses 7 and 8, which introduce the theme of God's love, but also present for us a theological quandary, or I'm going to present... To us, a theological quandary that will help us get into the remainder of the text. And then in verses 11 and 2 and 12, we're going to look at how to apply uh, the truth of God's love 
Okay, I'm sorry, I'm getting off my notes. You all are distracting me. You're all very, you're all, you're all very distracting. First, in 7 and 8, we're going to look at the theological quandary, introduce the theme of God's love. Then in verses 9 and 11, we're going to look at the answer to the theological quandary. And then in verses 11 and 12, how to apply the truth of God's love in our lives in two particular areas, right? And then we're going to come worship some more together and then come back and celebrate God's love and our love for each other here at the communion table, all right? So we begin with the theological quandary. All right, now in verses uh, 7 and 8, John is saying that love is the hallmark virtue of the Christian life. So look back here in our text. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And John is saying that love is the great sign that we have been born of God and that we know God. If we love, then it's evidence that we have, in fact, been born of God. If we do not love, then that's evidence of the fact that we do not know God and have not been born of God. Now look at this last phrase here in verse 8. Because God is love. God is love. That's an arresting phrase. Paul, John says it again here in verse 16. Uh, he says God is love, if you look further down in your text. And John isn't saying that God is lovely. He's saying that God is love. So we read all the time in Scripture that God is just, but we never read that God is justice. We read that God is righteous, but we never read that God is righteousness. We read that God is holy, but we never read that God is holiness. But here, John is saying that God is, is not just lovely. He's not even just loving. He is love. Which is to say that love is a unique Christian virtue. It's not just another virtue among many virtues. It's not just saying that love is just one of the things that God is about. God is love. Love is so strongly identified with God that here John is saying that God is love or, say like this, that love and God are the same thing. So all throughout the sermon series on joy, I, I made the point repeatedly that joy is a person and his name is Jesus. Well, it turns out that love is a person too and his name is God. And that's why love is the hallmark virtue of the Christian faith. Because the Christian faith is about knowing God. And since God is love, then therefore the Christian faith is about love. What John says here about love as the distinguishing characteristic of the Christian life is the same as what he then says later in verse 16. I just referenced it, but you can cast your eye down to verse 16. So we have come to know and, uh, and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. It's the same basic point that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, when he says that God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And it's the same thing that Jesus said to his disciples when he said that the world would know that you're my disciples because of the love that you have for each other. 
All of which is to say love is a pretty big deal for Christianity. It's the essence of Christianity. It's the hallmark virtue of Christianity. Okay, now we're going to pause here, and I want to problematize a little bit. I'm going to add some complexity to this passage. So we might think, okay, if love is the distinguishing virtue of the Christian faith, and it's the chief evidence that we've been born of God, what does that say about non-Christians and their capacity to love? Can non-Christians love if they have not been born of God? Now, for those of you here this morning that are non-Christians, this may not be a question that keeps you up at night. You might say, of course we can love. I love my kids. I love my parents. You Christians are weird, thinking you're the only people that can love people. Fair enough, we are weird sometimes. But this is a serious question for Christians. Because we think that love is a unique gift from God made available to us through the sacrifice of Jesus and that God pours out love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So if those who are not Christians have love just the same as we do, well, then that undercuts the whole uniqueness of our faith. So now there are two basic ways to handle this, and theologians debate this and talk about this. I don't know if you've ever debated and talked about this, but I have debated and talked about this with people. I think there are two basic ways that this gets handled. The first is to conclude that non-Christians truly aren't capable of love. In this approach, the love of non-Christians is somehow defective, or it's tainted by selfishness in such a way that it doesn't really qualify as genuine love. What a non-Christian thinks of as love is really just a high-minded selfishness. But as you might suspect, that idea is pretty off-putting to non-Christians. Have you ever tried that on a non-Christian? I mean, try telling the non-Christian mother that she doesn't really love her newborn baby. Or try telling the crying 10-year-old non-Christian boy at his father's funeral that he never really actually loved his father. Many of you came to faith in life later in life, and you know from your own personal experience, you can remember back to your days before Christ, and you know that you loved your children, and you know that you loved your parents, that you loved your siblings. Maybe you loved your siblings. Maybe you didn't love your siblings. but That you loved your friends before you became a Christian. But quite apart from our own personal experience or memories on this, the main problem with this approach is that Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 6 that people who don't know God nonetheless know how to love their family and friends. So saying that non-Christians aren't capable of love doesn't really work, and it puts us at odds with Jesus' teachings. So the other route is to say that non-Christians do in fact know how to love, they just aren't as good as it as Christians are. In this approach, the value of Christianity and the gift of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit helps Christians love better than we would otherwise naturally be able to do on our own. In other words, Christianity is like a booster rocket that's attached to an already existing natural human virtue of love. I think it's a, maybe a little bit closer, but all of us, I think, at least I have, have met non-Christians who are more loving than we are as Christians. I lived out in Nebraska for a while, and I... When I got out there, I would, 
I thought to myself, the non-Christians in Nebraska are more loving than the Christians in Chicago. Just small town, you know, rural, there's just something, well, anyway. In any case, this makes the Holy Spirit booster rocket of love thing seem a bit underpowered, right? But the main problem of this approach is that it implies that the gospel just helps us do what we are already naturally capable of doing on our own. But Christianity's claim is stronger than that. So we go back to the words of Jesus. Jesus taught in John 15, 5, that he is the vine and that we are the branches and that only when we abide in him can we bear fruit and that apart from him, we can do nothing. Now, nothing is a pretty strong term. And Jesus isn't saying that he came and died on the cross just to help us do better what we can already naturally do on our own. He's saying that apart from him, we can't do anything. So neither of these approaches are satisfactory. The first approach protects the uniqueness of the gospel by disparaging non-Christian love. The second approach is more generous to non-Christians, but disparages the necessity of the gospel. And most importantly, Jesus actually teaches against both of these positions. So where to from here? I don't know. Let's close in prayer. (laughs) Well, let's keep moving through our text and see if we can get some more help from our text here in these remaining verses. So that's our theological quandary. Is love really a unique aspect or virtue of Christianity? Now, I'm going to give you the solution here as we move through 9 and 10 at the front end so it's easier for you to follow. But here's the solution I think that John is going to set up for us in verses 9 through 10. God's love is different than human love. Both human love and God's love are really love. But God's love and human love are not the same. They're different. All right, in verse 9, John tells us that the love that is God was made manifest among us, became revealed to us, in the person of Jesus, whom God sent so that we could live. In other words, if we want to know what God's love is all about, we want to understand this God who is love, we need to look to Jesus because Jesus reveals God's love. Now look at verse 10. In this is love. John is saying, do you want to know what love is? In this is love. Not that we have loved God. Not that we have loved each other. Not that we have loved ourselves. In this is love. That God sent his own son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here in verse 10, we can see a distinction between between God's love and human love. The sort of love that John is talking about as the sign of Christianity is not human love, But God's love, God's love is understood in what God does in love, not in what humans do in love. And what does God do in love? He sent his son to die for our sins. This term propitiation that John uses is the same word that is sometimes translated in scripture as sin offering or atonement. And Jesus is the sin offering or the atonement 
that makes peace between us and God. Our sins brought death into the world, and along with death, hatred and violence. And ever since the days of Cain and Abel, it's been race against race, gender against gender, nation against nation, young against old. Sin has turned us into enemies of ourselves, into enemies of each other, and into enemies of God. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came as the propitiation for our sins. He took upon himself humanity's anger and despair and violence and enmity. He drank it down to the dregs and overcame it. And by doing so, he destroyed the power of sin and he made peace again between God and us. And Paul says the same basic thing in Romans 5, 6 through 10. You want, you can turn there, page 942 in your pew Bible, or you can just listen. But in Romans 5, 6 through 10, Paul is really, he's giving the same message that John is saying. But I like how Paul is saying it to kind of season and bring out some of the themes that we see here in John. Paul says in Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The key thing that I want us to note here, both in the Romans reading, but then also in our primary text in John, is that God's love is not mere, it's, God's love is not merely that God loves, that God's love is sacrificial, or that God's love is unconditional. Because human love can be sacrificial. For a righteous man, someone might possibly dare to die. Human love can be unconditional. The key thing about God's love is that it is directed towards his enemies. And that's what makes divine love categorically different than human love. So I put together a graphic, and if those of you that like graphics, here you go, this is your lucky Sunday. I call this initial graphic the circle of human love. It's like the circle of life in The Lion King, except it's not in Africa and there's no animals and it's not from Disney, and so it's nothing like that at all. But this here is the circle <laughs> of human love. Human love draws a circle around a certain portion of the human population that we deem in some way to be one of us. Our children, our lovers, our country, our sports team, our friends, our co-religionists, and so forth. In other words, we draw a circle of love around anyone that we think is important for our flourishing. And everyone within that circle of love is to varying degrees an object of our love. And we will sacrifice for those within our circle of love. We will be gracious to those within our circle of love. We will be forgiving towards those within our circle of love. We will even die for those within our circle of love. And if we're feeling especially generous... We might even invite folks 
who are outside our circle to come dwell with us within our circle of love. But you know who we never invite within our circle of love? Our enemies. This is what we do to our enemies. They're not welcomed into our circle of love. They're trying to harm what's inside the circle of love. And so our enemies are resisted. We fight against them. We certainly do not love them. Human love is often sacrificial and self-giving and generous and beautiful. But human love is only directed inward towards those within our circle of love, towards those whom we perceive as instrumental to help us in our flourishing. Human love is seldom directed towards those outside of our circle of flourishing, towards those who are irrelevant to our well-being, and it is never directed towards our enemies, especially not towards our enemies. Human love is bounded and is confined within the circle. But the remarkable thing about God's love is that his circle of love is unbounded. It is infinite. It extends to the whole of creation. He doesn't have to invite people into his circle of love. To be a human being is to exist within his circle of love, which is, is to say that no one is outside of God's circle of love not even his enemies. For all of my Harry Potter fans, do you remember that scene in The Half-Blood Prince where Dumbledore drinks the potion of despair in order to get the Horcrux so he can destroy him who must not be named? All my Harry Potter friends know who that is a reference to. That's a pretty good picture of Jesus and his sacrifice. Jesus drinking down to the dregs our curse in order to save us. But that scene doesn't really get all the way there. To be a more complete picture of Christ's redemptive love, Dumbledore would have had to have drunk the potion of despair not to save Harry and the Order of the Phoenix, but to save Voldemort and the Death Eaters. Because God's love is not merely love for his friends and family. It is love for his enemies. Mark Gelman is the senior rabbi of a Jewish synagogue in New York. I don't know much about him at all, but I've only read uh, one essay. He's a thoughtful religious leader, did his PhD in philosophy at Northwestern, does a lot of dialogue uh, in kind of ecumenical spaces and speaks in different uh, contexts. And he and a Catholic priest friend would often debate their respective religious perspectives and about what would be the hardest part of the other's faith if they were ever going to convert. And Gelman said that at first, the toughest sticking point for him was the Trinity, because it's so hard to understand. And I thought, well, don't worry, Gelman, because it's hard for Christians to understand the Trinity too. So. But then he said this. He said, however, over time, a different Christian belief brought me up short and froze me. I consider it the most important and the most unique and unprecedented and revolutionary of all Christian beliefs, and I cannot find a way to either understand or accept it, though I admire it deeply. The belief is recorded in Matthew 5, 
44, and also in Luke 6, 27 through 36. And Jesus said, I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. If there is any Christian teaching that confronts our normal human instincts more directly, I do not know what it is, he writes. What makes a person our enemy is precisely that he or she has done something to hurt us or those we love, and that hurt was purposeful and vicious and unrepentant. If you do not hate someone who has savaged your loved one, who would you hate? Moreover, Jesus' teaching is not just a command to forgive an enemy who has come to you with a sincere appeal for forgiveness and repentance. No, Jesus is teaching his followers to actually love an unrepentant enemy. It is not only that I cannot accept this teaching, it is that I do not even understand this teaching. To this day, love your enemies is a teaching that is outside of my heart. When I read Gelman's word, I thought, he gets it. He gets what Jesus is saying. Maybe he gets it even better than many Christians get it. Because we grow up all the time hearing Jesus say, love your enemies, love your enemies, love your enemies. But then somehow I feel like maybe it loses something, and we don't really understand it. But Gelman has seen like what the implications of that would really be. And it amazes him, and he admires it but he cannot accept it. He cannot bring it into his heart. He gets the difference between good old-fashioned human love and God's love. Divine love seeks not just the good of the other, but the good of the enemy. In this is love, John says. Not that we loved God and so he loved us in return but that even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, even while we were in rebellion against God, even while we were his enemies, he loved us, and he sent his son to die for us. So back to our theological quandary, do non-Christians love? Well, yes, for sure. They love within the bounded circle of human love. But Christians are called and empowered to love within the unbounded circle of God's love. Listen more to the words of Jesus. Gelman quotes Jesus from Luke chapter 6, but I want to I read the full uh, words of Jesus in Luke 6, 27 through 36. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, 
And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This is the heart of Jesus' teaching about love. Not to love those within our bounded circles of human love, but to have no circle, to love like God, to love with an unbounded love that extends out to all of humanity. This is the radical nature of Jesus' teaching, that it would extend out even to our enemies, not metaphorical enemies, but our real enemies. And I want to draw two points of application about this kind of love from the rest of this passage. And the first is this, very obviously, we are called to love like God. Look at verse 11. John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God loved us in this way, if this is how God loved us, then we also ought to love one another in this way. And we might read this to mean that we are only called to love each other within our bounded circle of Christian fellowship, meaning our fellow Christians. But given how expansive the love of God is, and I think the larger thrust of what John is saying, I take John to mean one another as in our fellow human beings. We ought to love the world and others as God has loved us. We ought to love in the same way that God loved us, with enemy-loving love of God, not with the friends and family love of humanity. We ought to love others sacrificially and without regard to those, to whether they are inside our circle or not, without regard to who's my friend and who's my enemy. Too often, so much of our love as Christians is animated by just good old-fashioned human love. I think that for many of us, we just traffic in human love most of the time. We're not being animated by the love of God. We love our children. We love our parents. We love our siblings most days. The younger you are, the less you do, perhaps. We love our friends, and all well and good. But when it comes to loving our enemies or loving those who are seeking to harm us, all of a sudden our love stalls out. I think that's an indication that our hearts are being powered primarily by human love rather than God's love. Because God's love transcends all of the old human limitations and boundaries. At the end of verse 12, John says that God perfects his love in our hearts. God doesn't perfect human love in our hearts. He perfects his love in our hearts. Not so we can love our children, but so we can love our enemies. And so we can love our children. Because sometimes our kids, you know, kids you know, it's just, be hard. So here's a sobering question for all of us this morning. Do you love your enemies? Not do you tolerate your enemies. Not do you ignore your enemies. 
Not do you refrain from retaliation against your enemies. All of those are human responses of love. But do you love your enemies? Do you seek the best for those who are seeking your worst? Most of us don't have people in our lives that are actively trying to kill us, thank God. But many of us have people in our lives who are, at least at times, actively working to harm us. Maybe it's someone at your work. Maybe it's someone in your neighborhood. Maybe it's someone in your own home. Maybe it's someone within the circle of love. And very often, when those within our circle of love turn against us, what do we do? We redraw the circle, put them on the outside of it to exclude them. We treat them like enemies. When someone comes at you as an enemy, what is your response? Do you seek their good and their blessing and their well-being, even at cost to yourself? Or is your response to retaliate, to withdraw, to ignore, to redraw the circle? Now, loving your enemies doesn't just mean rolling over and taking it, and I should say that. That's not love. Listen to this uh, quote from C.S. Lewis from his book, The Problem of Pain. Lewis says this. He says, by love, most people mean kindness, the desire to see others than the self happy. Not happy in this way or in that, but just happy, however they can get it. What would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so as long as they are contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence. I'm sorry to all the grandfathers out there. I, I didn't write this. Lewis wrote this. but A senile benevolence who, as they say, liked to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. That's how the world thinks about love so often, just making someone else happy. But making people immediately happy is not God's love. Making people ultimately happy, that's God's love. But God's love doesn't always make us immediately happy. And so as we're loving others with God's love, it doesn't always mean just giving everyone what they want, just rolling over and taking it. That's not God's love. Because love most fundamentally seeks the good and the well-being of the other. And so sometimes the best thing we can do for a person who is seeking to harm us is to resist their evil. Because resisting their evil is in their best interest. It is seeking their good. But the key difference between human love that resists evil and God's love that resists evil is that God's love always does it for the sake of the offender. I get this can be complicated, especially when there are differing levels of power involved. And sometimes we need help sorting out what love looks like in different complicated and hard situations. But I don't want to overcomplicate things and lose the force of what John and Jesus and the entire Bible is saying. 
We are called to love everyone, even our enemies, in the same way that God loves us, sacrificially and unconditionally and for their good. So who is God calling you to love this morning? Who is in your life that you don't consider, have not considered to be an object of love? That as you think about, do I have enemies? This person comes the closest to qualifying in your life as an active enemy set against you. Who is God calling you to love? Not just to tolerate, not just to turn away, not even just to turn the other cheek. That's only half of what Jesus taught. But to bless, to pray for, to give to, to love. Who is God calling you to love? Maybe you're not far enough along in your faith to entirely do away with the circle, to extend it out to all of creation. Few of us are, I think. That's the uniqueness of God and his love. But let's at least expand our circle of love as God directs. Let him lead you by the Spirit. He puts a person on your heart and says, you're thinking of this person as an enemy. And now I want you to start loving them. Let the Spirit speak a name into your heart this morning if he has a person he wants you to start loving. If you're a Christian, don't settle for just good old-fashioned human love. Stretch beyond your natural capacities and love another with the love of God, with his love. And then finally here in verse 12, God's love reveals God to the world. As we love each other, we reveal God to the world. Nothing more ably reveals God's love to the world than when God's love is living and active within the church. Look at verse 12 here. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John's logic seems to be something along these lines. No one has ever seen God. God is invisible. He can't be seen with human eyes. But if we love one another with his love, because he is love, he is made visible because he himself is the love that is passing between us as we love each other. And that's certainly what Jesus taught in John, taught to John in John 13, 35, when he told his disciples, by this all people will know that you belong to me because of the love that you have for each other. Because you'll be loving each other, not with human love, you'll be loving each other with my love, with God's love. So when we're loving each other with the love of God, not just with human love, we are revealing God. We can't see God any more than we can see love. Both are invisible, but God's love becomes incarnate in our actions towards each other. God's love abides in us, and his love is made complete in us. It's perfected in us. Maybe part of the reason we have such a hard time loving our enemies is because we're not loving each other with God's love. We're trying to love each other with human love. But as we love each other with God's love, practice at home, as it were, God's love grows up inside of us and becomes complete and perfected in us. And then maybe we will have the maturity and the bandwidth to love beyond, even out into our enemies. 
God's love is perfected in us and is a great witness to the reality of God. This is the most powerful way that the church can have to proclaim the reality of who God is as we love each other with God's love. So when we all gather together, whether on Sundays or throughout the week, we love each other with the love of God, the unseen God becomes visible. Our Christian love for each other isn't manifesting human love. It's manifesting God's love. And since God is his love, our Christian love is manifesting God. So let's set our hearts to continue loving each other as brothers and sisters in Christ who have been filled up with the Holy Spirit. God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Let us love each other with that love, not love each other with human love. Human love is limited. It's finite. And it can't handle enemies. But God's love is infinite and unbounded and extends to all, even to our enemies. Let us love each other with that love. And then may the world see that the love that we have for each other is not natural earthly love, but is heavenly divine love. And then may they come to behold God in our love and receive the love of God for themselves. Father, thank you that you have given us Jesus, to reveal your love for us. Human love, it's, it can be so beautiful and it can be so wonderful, but it is just a type of the archetype. It's just a sign and a shadow of the great truth that you are your love. And I pray that we would not settle for the type and let go of the archetype, that we would not hold on to human love thinking that it is the end-all, be-all, but that we would transcend human love to lay hold of your love and that your love would release in us your heart for each other, for the world. So God, continue to work in us. Keep filling us up with your